Bibles to the book of 1 John. This is the second sermon we were having in it. Last week was 1 John 1. This will be 1 John chapter 2. And we will read the first 27 verses of chapter 2. It's on page 1899 in your pew Bible. Hear now the reading of God's word. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. But if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. 
As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, no counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Now we read all 27 verses, but our focus this evening will be on the first 17 verses of the chapter. There was a TV show on for many years, I think just recently ended, called Mythbusters. The premise of this show was to test myths, to test interesting thoughts or ideas that have been claimed to happen, and to see if they were plausible, if they were confirmed, or if they were busted. It was a very interesting show. You found yourself wanting these myths to be confirmed. You wanted to know if a boat made out of duct tape could actually float. And it can, by the way. You want to know if there can be a motorcycle that rides on the water. These things were interesting. The show was interesting. The sad reality of it, though, was that many of the myths tested were just that, myths. As they ran them through the tests that they did, they were proven to be not true, that they couldn't happen. This happened the majority of the time. They were proven to be busted. Now, we understand the need to test things. We don't just accept what salesmen tell us. We look into it. And often, the more important the decision or the more money we're going to spend on something, the more and more we test, the more we look into it. We understand this. But what about our faith? What about the elements in life that are the most important? Do we test that? And what even are the tests for that? And if we do, using the Mythbusters distinction, do we find our faith merely plausible, confirmed, or busted? And this is what 1 John is providing for us. Tests. Tests for our faith. Tests for others' faith. Tests for true faith. All of us understand this. We are all sinful And generally, we seem to fall into one of two ways, one or two categories. Either needing assurance because we see our sin and we don't know what to do with it, we don't know if our faith is real, or we need a kick in the pants. We need an exhortation. We need to be shown your faith needs to produce good works. Very rarely do we find ourselves in the happy middle ground, but often erring on one of those two ways. So the question, am I saved, is a question we are familiar with. We've most likely asked it of ourselves and others around us, and if we haven't asked it, we certainly will. Am I saved? Well, 1 John chapter 2 provides three tests to determine the genuineness of our faith. The first test comes in verses 3 through 6, and that's the test of obedience, or a moral test. The second test comes in verses 7 through 11, and that's love, or a social test. And the third test comes in verses 18 through 27. Now, we won't go into that tonight, but that's the test of doctrine, of our belief. So we will look at the first two tests. You see, we saw in the first chapter that the true message of Christ brings us into fellowship with God. We also saw that those who claim to have fellowship with God cannot walk in sin, 
or they cannot walk in sin that they deny. They must confess it. They can't claim to be perfect. We saw these errors. And then we see in the first two verses of chapter 2, the, de- the dealing with sin. We see that there is an advocate we have. There is a righteous one. Verse 1 shows us this. He is with the Father. This righteous one stands in God's presence, and he is our advocate. We know God will listen to him because he is righteous. God will not deny him. The standard of our righteousness is before him in Jesus, and it's imputed to us. His righteousness is on our account. That's what we see in verse 1. In verse 2, it says that he's an atoning sacrifice. The original word this is translating, this atoning sacrifice, has the idea that Jesus came as a covering for our sin against the wrath of God. Jesus came and did away with what we couldn't and protected us from the penalty and justice of God. This is what is there for those who truly believe. Jesus possesses a threefold qualification to be our intercessor, his righteous character, his atoning death, and his heavenly advocacy. This atoning sacrifice is said also to be one that, that atones for the sins of the whole world. Well, we know that this doesn't mean that Jesus died indiscriminately for everyone. And that while Jesus was, died for every single person on the cross, this, this, the whole world here has the idea of all nations, all peoples. This isn't just the Jewish race. This isn't just the Gentile race. It's for everyone, over all time, past, present, and future. That is the scope of this whole world. So chapter 2 begins answering this sin dilemma, but this might lead to a question that John, John's audience would have had and that we ourselves might have. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. The sin dilemma is dealt with How do we know we truly believe? Okay, we know that if we confess our sins, we're forgiven. We know we need to have true faith in Jesus and we're forgiven. But how do we know that we do that? That's why John moves to these tests. These tests are not just to give us an exhortation or assurance. They're doing both. This passage shows us what our theme tonight is. Obedience, love, and belief bring assurance and an exhortation. That's what this passage summarized would be. Obedience, love, and belief bring assurance and exhortation. Or you could substitute, if you wish, exhortation for a kick in the pants. We either are assured of our faith or we receive a kick in the pants to be obedient. And so we will look at the first test in obedience. Verses 3 through 6 is this test It's not uncommon for Christians to downplay the importance of obedience, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church. Sometimes the gospel can seem like an old matter to us. We can grow up and say, yeah, I I know my sins are forgiven. I know that. I know I got to be obedient, but I can pray and, and be forgiven. It's very easy to slip into this. And so you see the need for an exhortation. And then we also know in our own lives, very often we fall into the need for assurance. So John is trying to spur the complacent on in his congregation to the fruit of their faith. Now you see, John is clearly not saying you are saved by your obedience. 
He says in verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. You see, we don't know that we come to know him because we obey his commands. It's not as if our, our obedience is the basis upon which we are saved. And listen here, because this is very important. Obedience is not the grounds of truly knowing God. It is the byproduct for those who truly know God. It is our fruit. Jesus said in Matthew seven fifteen to 20 that you could determine who are false prophets by their fruit. Jesus said, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. John is telling us we can do the same. We can recognize who are true believers, and if we are a true believer, by our fruit. Now, the natural question would be for us to ask, how much obedience, how much fruit is necessary for me to know it? And you see what we do there. We once again put our assurance on whether or not we obey. Now, on one hand, John is telling us to do this, but not as our ground. He said in verse 3 that we know him if we obey his commands. It's simply to know. This isn't an obedience meter that, we, that John's providing. Do this amount of good works, and then you'll know that you have a genuine faith. Rather, to continue with Jesus' imagery, it's not the amount of fruit on a tree that determines whether the tree is a good tree. It's the quality of the fruit it produces. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about the amount of our good works, but we shouldn't be counting them and seeing if they... Which side is more? Is our good works more? Is our bad works more? Which is better? Which is, which is greater? That's not what John's doing. He's saying we bear good fruit. It, it's the kind of obedience, though, that will increase. Our obedience and our fruit doesn't just stop. And if we become static in our growth, there is a problem. If we aren't producing more good works, if we aren't producing or growing in sanctification, there is an issue. This Holy Spirit dwells in us and sanctifies us. He works in us. He's a God who works. And if our faith isn't progressing anywhere and we're not drawing closer to God, we do need to question what is the quality of our faith. But John's point, once again, is that you find your assurance in Christ, you find evidence of your faith in your obedience. The Heidelberg Catechism actually addresses this in question 86, and I'm not going to read the whole question, but it asks, if we are delivered from sin, or since we are delivered from sin, why must we still do good? And part of the answer is, and we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. And so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. You see, obedience shows faith to be true, but it's not the reason for or the grounds of our true faith. In the first chapter, we saw that we have fellowship with God, and our obedience shows that we have that true fellowship. But here's another thing I want to be clear on that is very hard and very difficult that we slip into sometimes, that our obedience is what gives us a closer walk with God. One commentator says, Obedience does not lead to intimacy with God. 
John is not teaching that you, if you obey these commands, that will bring you into intimacy with God. Obedience flows out of intimacy with God. You don't obey because of what you think you might lose. You obey because you are already in fellowship with God. You see the motivation, what's motivating our works, it's because we are already in fellowship with God. It's an expression of our true life. And so we must be obedient. We must obey. Well, then what are we to obey? John keeps speaking of this commandment, these commandments, obey these commandments. Well, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 helps us answer it. He says, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So this command that we are to obey is to express our faith in Christ and also to love. That's really what this command is getting at, the command to love. Verse 4 shows that if we ignore this, we are liars, that we must love. And verse 5 says that for those who believe in Jesus and keep his command to love, actually has God's love made complete in him. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean to have God's love made complete in you? Well, the idea here is that the the greatest expression of our love for God is in obeying him. In other words, the perfect form of love is in obeying God. To use an illustration, it's like a, a, a marriage. Can a husband say that he loves his wife merely in words and not in actions? Now, I'm not married, but I think I know enough to if it was my wife's birthday, to say, oh, hon, I'm going to take you to that restaurant you hate just because I, I really like it. And then when we're done, we can go catch that movie I really like that you don't really. Is that really love? We express our love to God in our obedience. This is how important obedience is. It is the very expression of our love for God. That's why John's addressing it here. Verse 6 is really getting at the root of what we are to be doing. Jesus is the standard we are to imitate. And by imitate, it's not meaning simply to follow the what would Jesus do model. What would Jesus do here? Well, that's certainly good, but we're supposed to follow the very being of Jesus. We're supposed to follow Jesus as he came to us, expressing love that he showed to us, which is going to our second point, the second test, the test of love. This is a a social test because it's not just love expressed to God, it's love expressed to our brothers. John says this is the commandment, that this commandment on the one hand is not new, and that's certainly true. They had it a very long time. Jesus himself summarized what the law was in love of God and love of neighbor. So this, it's not new. He's telling them that I'm not bringing to you something you shouldn't accept. This isn't new doctrine. This isn't some heresy. You know this to be true. It's not new. But there is something new about it. Well, first, what's new about it is that he's giving the command again to emphasize it. This is how important this command is. But secondly, What's newer about this command is that it's expressed in a fuller and deeper way than what we ever had seen before. The deepness, the newness of this command is that it came in Jesus Christ and we saw how he loved. 
he expressed the command to love perfectly. And what he brought, especially to the table, if you want to say it like that, is a self-sacrificial love. A love that looked for the good of others and not for his own. A love that was concerned for others and not his own. It's self-sacrificial. Verse 8 says, Its truth is seen in him and in you. What greater assurance could we be given than when we see the love of Christ expressed in our own lives? That we ourselves are not only being loved by Christ, but loving others as Christ loved. This is how we find assurance. But again, we're not doing this so that we'll have assurance. We're doing this because we love, truly, because we are imitating Christ. And this love is shown to be true in that the darkness is passing away. The true light, which in this verse is meaning Jesus, is already shining. It's shining in the world and it's driving the darkness away. This love is genuine. This love, Jesus expressed, was to come to us worthless human beings and die. And this love is driving away the darkness. It's putting to death the deeds of the world. And so we would ask, how are we doing on this test? Are we loving as Christ loved? When other people see us, what is their impression? Do they see a people who love as Christ loved? Do they see people who are self-sacrificial, giving of themselves and what they want for the sake of others? And this comes into expression in so many ways. It, It can come down to the very simple thing of you have the more comfortable seat and you know that other person really wants it. But you're sitting there, it's like, this is a lazy boy, this is nice, this is really comfortable, I don't want to get out of this seat. Well, do you love your neighbor as Christ loved him? Now that seems almost, oh, this is so juvenile, it's such a dumb distinction, but but that's how all-encompassing this command is. To love in such a full way. True love for God is expressed in our love for others. And I don't think, I certainly didn't think Of this when I started reading this chapter, because it really puts us in a dilemma. What this means is if our true love for God is expressed in how we love others, if we're not loving others, that means we're not loving God. And so when we don't put someone else first, we say, God, I don't love you enough to do that. God, I don't love you enough to turn the other cheek. I don't love you enough to talk to that person over there that annoys me. I just don't want to do it. If we do that, we're actually saying we don't love God. This is the full exhortation John's bringing. He's trying to get them to see the need for these good works. What we do for others, we are doing for God. And this is the the greatness of, of God. We serve a God who didn't just tell us, love me, love me with all your heart. He said, no, show your love to me and how you love others. What a loving God. 
How astonishing is that? That's his concern for others, for his people, that his people would be expressing his own love in their love for each other. So those are the two tests, the test of obedience and the test of love. Very similar, but two tests that John gives. And now in verses 12 through 17, we see the test results. We see what this is supposed to produce, what these tests are supposed to produce, and what's true of these tests. Verses 12 through 14 show the blessings for those who pass the test or who are in Christ. Verses 15 through 17 have a further exhortation. So in verses 12 through 14, John is affirming what is true of them and the blessings that they are enjoying as believers. It seems as if he's addressing three different groups here. He says children, fathers, and young men. Now what's most likely going on here is children is a reference to the whole congregation because throughout this epistle, he always calls the whole congregation with that loving term, my children. So this is a reference to all of them. So then we have two groups seeming to be addressed here, and that's fathers and young men. This is fathers is most likely the, those who have been Christians a long time, those who are either spiritually mature or who have just grown close to God. They have been true members for their lives. And that would mean young men are probably those who are newer converts, but who have nevertheless been forgiven of their sin. The verse says, have overcome the evil one. However John's addressing them, though, he's speaking to this congregation and saying that he is writing to this group of believers who have been forgiven of all their sins, who have a deep personal relationship with God, and those who have overcome the evil one and his temptations. Why is he doing this? Well, he's saying, I'm writing these things to you because this is true of you. I'm writing to you to obey God's commands because you are in fellowship with God. Even in, even in saying this, he's providing them with assurance. He's saying, I know this is true of you, and so I'm telling you to obey. I'm, I know that you are saved. That's what John's saying. And if you are saved, do this. What's so wonderful about this is, I can say the same thing to everyone here. I say this to you because you have had your sins forgiven. I say this to you because you have overcome the evil one. Because you know God. And why can I say that to you? Because if you're in Christ, all of these blessings are true of you. This is what verses 12 through 14 are expressing. And this is what we need to cling to. Verse 12 says, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's meaning because of Jesus Christ, these things are true of you. Again, our grounds, the gospel message is not in our works that we achieve our salvation, it's in Christ. And that's where our assurance comes from. But then in classic style, now John goes back to exhortation. It's, he's just weaving in and out of this throughout, throughout the whole epistle, basically, is, is a, a weaving in and out of this is true of you, so obey. Assurance, a kick in the pants. He swerves back and forth. Verses 15 through 17 say, Do not love the world or anything in the world. 
John's not meaning here the world and everything in it per se. It's not as if the world created is a bad thing. The world here that he's meaning is a world opposed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. To that which is sinful, to that which is temporary, he's saying do not love it. When we read this, we're hearing do not love it. Now on one hand, this should sound like just a thud because we all know how much we love the world. We know that we're fighting sin. And so when we hear that, it really grabs us. Do not love the world. He even says in verse 16, because everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. We who are in fellowship with the Father have no fellowship with the world. We are not to love it. This phrase, the cravings of sinful man, it's really a beautiful description of something that couldn't be more ugly. Because when we think, what are the cravings of sinful man, or if you translated this very woodenly, what are the desires of the flesh, we see the sexual revolution, drugs, rape, murder, These are the cravings of the sinful world. These are the things John's telling us not to desire. Now those are quite obvious sins, but now what do we, we don't always see that the love and desires of this world come about in much simpler ways. Take a step back and look at your life and what do you see there? Why do we get so mad when we think we're being mistreated? Why do spouses get mad at each other when the dishes aren't done, the dinner isn't made? Why do parents get mad at children when they didn't immediately obey them? Why do kids get mad at parents for having to obey? It's because we desire our own glory. We do crave the things of this world and our sinful flesh. This is played out in, in so many ways in envy and jealousy That person's more funny than I am. That person makes more money. That person's a better public speaker. That person's better at the job. That person's better at sports. And we envy. And we hate it. This is what we're fighting against. This is what we're told not to love. Our time is out, but we'll end looking at what he says in verse 17. That the world and its desires are passing away. It's kind of interesting that we had those psalms today that talked about the brevity of man's life. John's saying, the world and its desires are passing away, so why go after them? They will not last. They're not eternal. Christ is putting them to death. The world is passing away. Why do we live our lives after something that's temporary? Why would we spend all of our time and energy pursuing what God sees as so worthless that he's just sweeping it away? We're supposed to imitate God. And that's what we do. Verse 17 says, But the man who does the will of God lives forever. And now we really see the blessings of this gospel. 
that the world is passing away, but we aren't. Those who are truly in Christ and see their assurance and their obedience and their love know that we will last for eternity. We are lasting because we are in fellowship with God. And so these are the two tests. Before we leave, I do want to again remind us that these tests are not something that we need to pass on our own works. These tests are something that Jesus passed for us. These tests are what Jesus accomplished. And so those of us who cling to Christ, if we use the Mythbusters analogy, we find that our faith is confirmed. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us exhortations and commands to obey. And we thank you that you show us in your word that it is in Jesus we find our assurance. That it is in him that we have forgiveness. And that we have been forgiven. And who is our intercessor, who is our advocate. We pray, though, that this would lead us to good works. That the good works we do would be an expression of the love and fellowship we already have with you. That we would look continually to these things simply to be something that's pleasing in your sight and not upon which we stand for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.